Open your Bibles with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, we've been moving through the book of Corinthians, and uh, what we've noticed, what we've seen is that Paul, in this book, in this letter, uh, as it was for him, uh, is writing to the church of Corinth, trying to help them to deal with um, many problems that they were facing, mistakes that they were making, sins that they were uh, committing. And the first one that he has sought to address, that he sought to deal with, is the issue of unity. That the, the group had broken into different factions, different people within the church uh, were holding to different leaders, different people of authority, uh, seeing themselves as, uh, I'm a follower of Paul, or I'm a follower of Apollos, or I'm a follower of, a follower of Peter, uh, that sort of thing. And this has led to division in the church, and Paul has sought uh, through various means of instruction to help them to see how unity might be achieved. And as we come to chapter 3, we find Paul dealing with the issue of the life that they lead. What sort of life characterizes uh, a well-lived life for the Christian? A Roman philosopher named Seneca made this uh, Fairly plain, but uh, I think profound statement. It's not how long, but how well you have lived that is the main thing. Now, I think we might all agree with that sentiment. We all might look at that sentiment and say, yeah, you know, uh, you know, some people live a very short life, and, and but they, they have one that's very meaningful and impactful and, and significant and, and changes the world. And, and some people, um, you know, live long lives and never accomplish anything. It's not really how long you live, it's how well you live that matters. But the question that grows out of that is what defines living well? What defines a life that is well lived, as it were? And so I've gathered together a collection of, of quotes from a variety of sources, uh, believers, non-believers, and so forth, that uh, define for them what a life well lived is. And and let's just see where, what, was, what resonates with you. The first is by Robert Lewis Stevenson, famous uh, author. The man is a success who has lived well, loved much, and laughed often. For Stevenson, it seems that living well is what? It's defined by loving a lot and laughing often. That is what it means to, to live well uh, in his mindset. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, another famous American author, he put it this way, he says, the purpose of life is to be useful, to be honorable, to be compassionate, to have it make some difference that you have lived and lived well. So to live well for Emerson is what? It's to, it's to be honorable, it's to be compassionate uh, in terms of uh, how we live. That's what defines living well. Erwin uh, McManus, uh, he's a popular speaker nowadays and so forth. Uh, he says, you're not supposed to die with your potential. A life well-lived squeezes all the potential placed within and does something with it. So in other words, for McManus, it's, it's living up to our potential. It's seeing what we're capable of and pushing that to its, uh, its limits. And then Jose Gonzalez, he is a musician. Uh, he says, strive for a life well-lived. Each one with their own aims, preferences, and meaning, always, of course, without harming other persons, 
or preventing others from being able to form a good life for themselves. So, Gonzalez's take is essentially a life well lived is what? It's identified in whatever pleases you. Just as long as you don't bother other people, you live however you want to live, whatever you want to do. Now, I would venture to say that as we looked at these, as we heard these different quotes, parts of them may have resonated with you. Other parts were like, eh, I don't know if that's really on point or if that's really accurate and so forth. Um, but I, I want to share with you a story. It's one of my favorite stories from, from church history, broadly speaking. Uh, it's of a man named William Borden. William Borden was, um, yes, of that Borden family, uh, the, the Borden milk. Uh, family, uh, very well known, very wealthy. Uh, in 1904, he graduated from high school, already a millionaire. And uh, his parents, to celebrate his uh, graduation from high school, gave him a trip around the world. Pretty nice graduation present, right? You know, <laughs> you just go, you just go tour out and so forth. William was, uh, in fact, a believer. At this point, he had come to Christ in high school and, and had a, a, a lot of convictions and, and ideas already about what it meant to be a believer. Um, and so he took he undertook this trip as, as a gift it was, but he became burdened as he traveled. So he went through Asia and Europe and the Middle East. Um, he saw the people who were hurting. He saw the people who didn't have Christ, who didn't have life, who didn't have the hope that he had. And so he made a decision, he made a commitment on that trip that he was going to become a missionary. And he surrendered to the mission field, and he took his Bible, his personal Bible that he carried with him everywhere, and at the top inside page of the Bible he wrote, No Reserve. No Reserve. In 1904, uh, uh, when he arrived at Yale to prepare for his studies and so forth, um, his passion for Christ was was already kindled, and he, and he found great disappointment there at the school. He was not encountering Christ. He was not experiencing Christ the way he thought. And so he asked a friend of his to begin praying with him before breakfast. And as these young men gathered to pray and gathered to, to serve as a result of his leadership, uh, other prayer groups began to spring up around campus, and by his senior year, um, 1,000 of the 1,300 students at the school were meeting for prayer on a weekly basis. Many of those young leaders came to Lord through through the Lord through that movement. Now, upon graduation, obviously being uh, an heir to uh, the Borden legacy and, and having all sorts of insight and having a degree from Yale, he was offered a lot of very high-paying jobs, but he turned down those offers to continue his pursuit of God's call in his life in the mission field. And while making this decision, he wrote two more words in his Bible, the words, no retreat. So he wasn't going to hold anything back. He wasn't going to retreat. So he went on to Princeton Seminary to prepare for the mission field. And he completed his studies, and he sailed to China to work with Muslims. That was going to be his work. He was going to work with the, the Uyghur people. We've heard about them in the news a lot lately, persecuted by the Chinese government and so forth. That was going to be his call. 
And he stopped on his way in Egypt, in Egypt to study Arabic, to learn the language so he could be able to better speak to this population. But there, while he was in Egypt, he was stricken with spinal meningitis. And within a month, at the age of 25, he died. His belongings were collected and sent home, including his Bible. And his friends, looking through his Bible, opened to that page, and they saw the words, no reserve. They saw the words, no retreat. But then they saw that two more words had been added. No regrets. Now you might look at Borden's life and say, what a waste. Here's a man who loved the Lord, who was willing to work and minister and serve. There's a man who could have made a real difference with his resources and his love for the Lord, could have made a real difference in the world for Christ. And yet he was taken at 25. But I think those three words characterize quite well how Gordon would respond to that. That when called to the ministry of Christ, when called to live a life well lived, for him it simply meant, I'm going to live without reserve. I'm not going to hold anything back. Anything that I have, everything that I have is the Lord's. However God deems fit to use it, I'm open to that. I won't retreat when the difficult times come or when the promise of better times come. I won't pull back. I won't look in a different direction. I will maintain my call, maintain my journey. And when I stand before the throne of God, in that moment, when I meet Jesus face to face, I will have no regrets because I've lived the life that God called me to live. Paul very much takes up this mantle, this idea, this concept of a life well spent here in 1 Corinthians 3, and he gives us some markers of what that looks like. Things that we see in Borden's life, things that we need to see in our own life, things that are expressions of what a believer ought to be about. And the first thing that Paul identifies for us as a marker of a life well spent is that we are experiencing growth. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, For my part, brothers and sisters, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, since you were not ready for it. In fact, you are still not ready, because you are still worldly. For since there is envy, envy and strife among you, and not are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? For whenever someone says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not acting like mere humans? Paul here says to the church, one of the markers of what it looks like to be a believer, one of the things that distinguishes us from the world is the capacity for growth. The capacity for the transforming work of Jesus to, to take hold and to begin to, to mold us and shape us. He, he uses the, the picture here of, I wanted to give you meat to eat. I wanted to serve you that steak, that filet mignon. 
okay? That T-bone, that sirloin, whatever cut of meat it is that you like best. I wanted to give you that stuff, the good stuff. But all you could eat was baby food. I remember it wasn't that long ago, actually, when, when my babies were, were growing. You know, I remember those jars of baby food. Man, I'd look at that. How do, those, how do they eat this stuff? How on earth do they eat this stuff? You'd look at it, and it's just this, this bush paste. And you're like, there's nothing appetizing about that at all. But that's what I had to give them. Why? Because that's all they were ready for. Oh, I would have loved to grill them up a steak or a burger or something like that and shove that in their mouths as they <laughs> opened expectantly. But that's all they were ready for. And so many times we have believers, we have people who have been in church 20, 30, 40 years and yet all they're still ready for is that baby food. They're not ready to be challenged with the Word. They're not ready to be challenged with the truth. They're not ready to be challenged with some of the depths of what God's Word has to say. And, and that's, a, that's a marker of trouble. That's, that's a marker of a, of a life not well spent. That's a marker of a life where other things have been our priorities. Other things have been our emphases, whether it's a it's a job or, or even family or, or other things that are, that are good things. They're, they're good things. The enemy of the best is not the worst. The enemy of the best is the good. Because it's such a temptation. And we can rationalize so easily. Man, I, I pour my life into this job or I pour my life into, into this situation or this part of my family or, or whatever. And I do these things and... and Man, I can rationalize. I can look. I can say, look, this is part of the American dream. This is part of my responsibility and those sorts of things. They're, they're good things. They're not things we ought to be avoiding. But the trouble comes in when we make them the priority instead of Christ. When we make those things the priority instead of growing in Christ, learning about who Christ is, learning about what Christ would expect of us, would require of us, would desire of us. Our jobs become better. Our families become better. Our relationships become better when they're centered in, when they're driven by, when they're motivated by, when they're defined by our relationship with Jesus Christ. He has to be the priority. And the way you know He is the priority is if you're growing in Christ, if you're growing in your understanding of Him, if you're challenged by His Word to, to new heights of Obedience to, to new levels of action. And that becomes expressed, that becomes manifested not just in who we are as individuals, but, but who we are as a church. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite theologians, said 100 religious persons knit into a unity by careful organizations does not constitute a church any more than 11 dead men make a football team. The first requisite is life, always life. And life is evident how? By growth. You know, if, if I have a plant, if I have a tree, if I have something in my yard and, and I'm looking at it, it's not growing, it's just always staying the same and never changing and never altering in any way. You know, I don't have to be a gardener. I don't have to be an expert in, 
in botany or anything like that to know that plant's probably dead or plastic. Life is evident when growth is evidence. And so that ought to be one of our, our first goals, one of our first investments is, is working, living, operating in such a way that life, growth is taking place. We're different today than we were a year ago. We understand more about the things of God than we did a year ago. We understand how to relate to people and how to, how to connect with people and how to share our faith with people better than we did a year ago. We're spending more time in prayer, in His Word, in, in worship, and appreciating those things more than we were a year ago. These are markers of growth for the Christian. The second marker of a life well lived is the person who makes God known. Paul continues in verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants is the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. Paul here talks about the limits of humanity. Our limits, even though we experience growth, even though we may be experts, Apollos and Paul, ultimately we have our limitations. What is Paul? What is Apollos? Paul's answer is simply what? Nothing. We're pointers to the Lord. We're pointers to God. And, and that needs to be our mindset, our perspective, our life. We do indeed bear a responsibility. I planted Apollos water. There is investment there. There is, there is encouragement there. There is, there is direction there. We have a purpose in the life that we live. We have a role to play in God's work. I remember the very first church I, I, I pastored. I was in seminary. It was about 100 miles from, from the school, and I was only there on Sundays. There was 15 people in that church. 15 people. And uh, I was there every Sunday preaching to those people, those wonderful people. And, and we were fortunate while I was there we had a, a, a woman and her daughter come to Christ. You know, and it was the first baptism that the church had seen in, in years. You know, 15 people, you don't see a lot of turnover and so forth like that. Okay. And it would have been really easy for me to get kind of cocky. Well, look at me. I show up and within just a little bit of time here, we got two believers, new, new believers. Look at me. Um, but I realized, I recognized that they were actually, their response was actually the result of the work of the previous pastor. The investment he had made in them, the time he had placed in them. And the work of the 15 members loving on them, encouraging them, making them feel welcome in that congregation. 
I, I got to what? I got to be the one who harvested. But others had planted. Others had watered. We each have a role to play. Never underestimate your influence, your role, your purpose in spreading the word of God. You may look at your life and say, I've, I've never been able to lead somebody to Christ. I, I've never been the one who harvested that. Okay? That's not your job anyway. It's God who does what? Who brings the harvest. You may be a planter. You may be a waterer. You may be somebody who's, who's in that journey somewhere of that person's decision of faith. But you play a role. You have a purpose. Take that purpose seriously. Play that role ardently. Put yourself into it. We have, we bear responsibility, but not all the responsibility. Because what? Only God gives the growth, Paul says here. True believers have one purpose. That is to make God known. And we're all equal in that purpose. And we're all blessed to work alongside God. What a title Paul gives us there in verse 9. We are all God's co-workers. Man, what a title. You know, I've, I've had privilege of working alongside a, a lot of great men and women over the years in my, in my education, teaching, and pastoring and so forth, people that are just top-notch over the years. And there's something great about being a part of a team where you know your team members are top-notch. They're the best at what they do. Now stop and apply that to your life and realize you're God's co-workers. person working alongside you is the one who created this universe the one who made all that we see, the one who sustains it and holds it in his hands. That ought to excite you. I go to work every day, and God's right there beside me working too. That's the image that, that Paul tries to draw. That's the, the idea that Paul tries to communicate, that we, uh, we make God known, and we make him known as we work alongside him. We know who he is, and we communicate that. Third marker of a life well spent is a person who has stewardship, who experiences stewardship with kingdom priorities. In other words, our abilities, our talents, our tasks, our money is spent in a healthy way with the priorities of the kingdom in mind in what we do. Beginning in verse 10, according to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder, and another builds on it. But each one is to be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. That foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that has he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple 
and that the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and that is what you are. Paul here is talking, he's, he's communicating the, 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 the stewardship of our gifts. And he's saying that, that we all try and contribute things. As we go through life, we try and, we try and do our best as believers to, to do what we think is right. And he says some of what we do is straw and some of what we do is gold. But what's the distinguishing factor? How do you define which is which? What is the outcome? The outcome is embedded where? It's in the fact that Jesus Christ is the foundation. Are we doing what we're doing for his glory, for his purpose? Are, are we doing what we're doing? Is the work we're carrying out revelatory of his position, his place? Are you building with kingdom priorities? Because the work we do, the task we carry out, has eternal purpose. It's not just about here and now. It's just it's not just about right now and, and what we're experiencing and, and what we're going through and, and what we enjoy in this moment. It has lasting implications, eternal implications. And if we're talking about something that big, that grand, that long-standing, then what we ought to be doing is building in such a way that it sees people through that. And the only way that people are going to be seen through eternity is by connecting it with what? With the eternal one. That's Jesus. What is your motivation for what you do here at the church, in your life, and at your workplace, in your relationship? What is the driving factor that defines how you spend your money? Is it your own personal enjoyment? Or is it to reflect who Jesus is? To communicate what Jesus has done? To reveal eternal values? The fourth thing that Paul identifies as a marker of a life well spent is selflessness and humility. And in particular, what Paul would say here is that selflessness and humility are the greatest expressions of a life well spent. They are the goal in terms of our own disposition, in terms of our own mindset. Christ revealed is our purpose, but selflessness and humility is the attitude, it's the mindset, it's the perspective that drives us to that. It's what we grow into. It's the best means by which we make God known. It helps us define and understand the stewardship of our priorities. Now verses 16, 17 that I read just a moment ago says, know that you are God's temple. What you need to understand there, and this because this is a passage that's thrown out there all the time. Your body is the temple of God. Da, 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 da. And there's some truth to that, but that's not what Paul is saying here. 
The you in verse 16 is plural. He's talking to the church. He's saying as a body of Christ, as, as, as people who are made up of this, you all together are God's temple. He's not talking about us individually here. He's not talking about how well we take care of our, our individual body. He's talking about how well we take care of the church body. And he, he speaks a very harsh word here. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. This is that, that whole notion of unity. This is that whole culminating argument in that direction. I understand why sometimes it's difficult to be part of a church. Because sometimes... Members of the church are the most ungodly people out there. Paul himself says what to the church here at Corinth? Y'all look like everybody else. I understand that. I understand the hurt people can cause. I understand the disillusionment, the pain, the agony that people can cause. But at the end of the day, Paul says, Christ says that what? The church is the bride of Christ. And we ought to be connected to it. We need to be connected to it. It's a part of His plan and His purpose. You can't celebrate Him and be distinct, different from His church. This is how He's designed to work. And so that's incumbent on us to, to be a part of the church, but it's also incumbent on what? For us as a church to not destroy fellow believers. People who are hurting. We need to be ministering to them, sharing with them, communicating to them. He goes on in verse 18, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, so that he can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, since it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the reasoning of the wise are futile. So let no one boast in human leaders, for everything is yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the word, the world or life or death or things present or things to come, everything is yours and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. Self-promotion leads nowhere. And we have all we need in Jesus. Paul here is, is he's coming back to the arguments he's already, he's already laid out. If you think you're wise, if you think you're something, might be the way we might put it today. If you think you're something, then become nothing so that you realize that you are something. What's he saying there? If you think you're something, number one, you're wrong. Because if you're something in the world's eyes, that's not anything that lasts. That's not anything that matters. That's not anything that's significant. So what? Become nothing by acknowledging that you need Jesus and that you're here to proclaim Jesus. You're here to portray Jesus. You're here to communicate Jesus. And in becoming nothing, then you come to realize just how something you are because Christ has called you his brother, his sister. Christ has called you his co-worker, 
Christ has called you his own. And that's a life that really matters. Another individual from the 20th century that sticks out to me is a man named Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was, like Borden, very well educated, could write his own ticket in terms of work. He'd studied to be a physician. He could go to work at any time. But he too, like Borden, felt called to, to serve and to, to minister, to be a missionary to an unreached people group. He chose a group down in Central America. And he traveled down there and he, he planted some, some work there uh, among uh, a certain group who were rivals of this group he ultimately wanted to, to minister to, wanted to, to serve and reach. And he was able to see churches grow and people begin to, to, to come to Christ and they began to, to reach out to, to try and minister to this other people group, the Akuna. And they did the work that they'd always done. They, they, they reached out. They, they made early contacts and, and all these other things. And it seemed like it was working. The people were being responsive. And he and his friends one day were, were out, and they saw this, these, these women come out of, the, out of the jungle across the river. And they were excited. They went out into the river to, to greet them and so forth thinking this is finally the day. This is where we're finally going to connect. And then they heard a yell from behind them. They turned around to see the men of that tribe with spears all aimed at them. And Jim actually had a sidearm. He could have easily pulled it and taken all of them down before they were able to get them. But that wasn't his calling. That wasn't what the sidearm was for. And him and his friends all were killed right there that day. Several years later, that group would be reached for Christ by Jim's wife and the wives of those men as they connected. Some of the very men who led in the massacre of those missionaries became believers, worshipped alongside the wives of the men that they had killed. Now you look at Jim, clean-cut American young man, trained to be a physician, left all of that behind to go and die in the jungle. And again, you say, was that a waste? Many of his friends said the same thing to Jim. Why would you give up everything that you have and everything that you have access to to go do that? You're a fool. Just as the Corinthians were called fools for believing Jesus. And Jim's simple response, well known, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he can never lose. When we commit to follow Jesus, 
when we commit to make him known, when we commit to grow in our understanding of him, when we commit to kingdom priorities, there are things we're going to have to give up. There are things we're going to have to set aside. There are things we're going to have to deny ourselves with. But a life well lived is defined as a life that's lived for Jesus. A life that makes him known. A life that has eternal consequences in what it does. Building things of silver and gold instead of straw, wood, that so are easily burned away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, for your goodness. God, I, I come to you today and, and I confess my failure to follow through on the priorities that ought to be my priorities. God, I ask you to, to help me to, to grow, to learn, and to invest in making you known and living a life of humility and selflessness, understanding that at the end of the day, all that matters is you. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here as well. I pray that that would be their prayer, that you'd help each of us to commit to that, to walk in that, to to desire to make you known. God, I also want to lift up anyone here this morning who does not have a relationship with you, doesn't know what it means to surrender their life to something bigger, to the only thing that's really bigger, a relationship with you. God, I pray that you would move in their hearts, help them to see their desperate need for salvation, their desperate need for a relationship and to truly recognize that they're not a fool for giving up what they can't keep to gain what they can't lose. God, I pray that you would help us to listen to your voice as you lead us. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen.